Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, September the 8th. We begin with a look at the federal election campaign, specifically the not-so-friendly side of political campaigns, which includes mud-slinging attack ads and mob-style protests. We'll speak with the professor of political science on whether these negative actions are now the norm here in Canada during the election process. On the topic of the upcoming election, Canadians have the chance to see what the leaders of the major parties have to offer tonight with the second French-language debate. We catch up with David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News, on what we can expect. It's been a real horse race between Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole of the CPC over the past few weeks. We'll take a look at the latest polling numbers done exclusively for Global News with Daryl Bricker, CEO of Public Affairs with Ipsos. And finally, it's International Literacy Day. We hear about the many great resources and programs available, particularly for kids, at the Calgary Public Library. Well, we're seeing more volatility from voters during this election and even some violence with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau being hit by a handful of gravel during a campaign stop earlier this week. But is it just the pandemic that's creating this polarization? With his thoughts on the topic, we're joined this morning by Peter Grafe, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Good morning, Professor. How are you? Great, thanks. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. So, I mean, do you think, is this something new or is this just a different version of what we've seen before? Uh, I mean, I think we're seeing, uh, you know, in a sense, it's becoming a bit more extreme. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen in the past uh, politicians getting egged or getting milk poured on them and kind of absorbing the unhappiness of the political community through that kind of form of theater, which, you know, for them is obviously not very pleasant, but... Uh, you know, there, there's the understanding that no one's really getting hurt in that, but that people are really blowing off steam. You know, in situations where people begin throwing rocks, uh, it seems like the, the intention is clearly to hurt. So in that way, I think we are seeing uh, something that's a bit new. I mean, again, it's not unusual to have pretty uh, aggressive discourse and uh, claims of parties against each other. And if, you know, we go back in time. But I think there's a way in which voters have been changing uh, you know, perhaps especially with social media, there's been a, a growing polarization right, where we're kind of fed by an ecosystem which takes whatever our position is and in many cases kind of exaggerates it. Uh, because, again, to get our attention in those in those forums, you're always trying to give people something that's just a bit more uh, extreme or, a, you know, a, a bit uh, more challenging to people. And I think it's, it's produced uh, an electorate where parties say, well, there's not actually a lot of people left to convince what we really have to do is mobilize our base. And so the way they talk to voters also becomes a bit more polarizing. Again, because they aren't trying to really reach out to the undecided in the same way as make sure that the people who agree with them uh, are excited enough to go out and vote on Election Day. Professor, I'm, I'm wondering, our closest neighbors, we see this, you know, seems to be quite frequently down south. Is this uh, something that we've gleaned and ad- adapted or adopted from our American uh, neighbors? Or are there examples of this happening, you know, decades back in our, our country? Well, I mean, I think what you see is, you know, ultimately this is an affair. Uh, you know, it's a pretty small number of people who would decide to go and throw uh, gravel at politicians mm-hmm. or otherwise, you know, think about this. It's a really, relatively small group of people, but certainly, uh, you know, they're networked internationally. And, you know, they, they figure out what works in terms of moving people in different places. So certainly, you know, a lot of that's been happening in the United States is being followed quite closely, you know, in Canada. And so I suspect things like the storming of the Capitol and the planning behind that have been quite influential. 
you know, if you see some of the, you know, the discourse, you know, for instance, from, you know, a former Calgary Flame who's become quite, you know, high profile, uh, holding, you know, views that are related to QAnon, uh, you know, again, a kind of American, uh, uh, American birthed movement, but, you know, their, their discourse, you know, gets uh, taken up in, in countries like Canada and elsewhere. So certainly, you know, there's a capacity for this discourse to circulate and for people holding it to organize better. And I think, you know, people who study kind of uh, far-right organization, you know, note the extent to which white supremacists and neo-Nazis have really glommed on to things like the Yellow Vest movement a couple of years ago here in Canada, mm-hmm. more recently the anti-vax and anti-mask protests, again, to find a milieu which is, you know, ripe for recruiting and taking people and radicalizing them. You know, someone who maybe was upset about masking, uh, but, you know, maybe ends up in an ecosystem where they're pushed to adopt, you know, much stronger views uh, as time goes on. So then I, I would assume you would agree we can probably thank social media for the ability for these people to kind of glom on to the different groups and, and continue the, the polarization, as you say, and the divisiveness. Do you, do you think social media is playing a big role in, in how this is all playing out? Yeah, I mean, it certainly, you know, provides, uh, you know, these groups, A, with an ability to organize and to find each other, which would have been much harder without it, but also to create a universe of kind of self-serving, you know, justifications and explanations of events. You know, so in the past, if someone, like, fell into something like the Communist Party in the 1940s or 50s, you know, they'd have their own newspapers and their own groups, and anything that would happen would be reinterpreted to be consistent with the view of that group. And, I mean, social media, I think, provides these groups with, you know, the opportunity to do that in a new form mm-hmm. so that when anything happens, there'll be influencers there saying, well, no, it actually isn't as you think it is. It's, you know, another front for, you know, whatever conspiracy that's out there. But, you know, again, people may hold these views, but the ability to hold it is, you know, limited by whether people in their families or in their social media challenge them and say, you know, that's, that doesn't make sense. What are you, you know, what are you getting from that? And I think it's also limited by our political and civic leadership, where, you know, the, there's times at which parties will flirt with extreme organizations because they see a potential basin of mobilized voters. And so it's important, ultimately, for mainstream uh, parties and, and social institutions to make it really clear uh, where they draw the line. Drawing the line is one thing, uh, Professor, but also, you know, to try to get that information you need as a voter on these platforms, it seems to me like it's even more onus on, our, you know, regular citizens to find out where they stand because the noise can be so loud surrounding these acts. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, you know, not to have a kind of, you know, glorified vision of the past, but I think when we had, you know, more, you know, civil society organizations and people met, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, through service clubs, uh, you know, through their unions, through their churches... Uh, there was a space, I think, to uh, learn uh, from in a kind of mainstream way <laughs> about what these parties stood for. And we had a, a kind of a stronger mainstream media as well. Uh, in some ways, as people become more disconnected, uh, they don't have those reality checks, if you like, uh, to kind of control what they may have picked up from what they've read in one place or another. Is it possible to get back to those good old days where things were a little more calm and a little less vile, really, and, and, and just maybe a little more you know, where we actually get information as opposed to constant battles between the political parties, the leaders themselves, and and between us as citizens? Do you think we can get back there ever? Well, I mean, they probably weren't good old days in the past entirely either, but I mean, I think we can do better. Uh, And, you know, part of doing better is people making decisions that uh, these things are unacceptable or making decisions that, you know, organizations that are willing to 
you know, uh, inter- in- interact with people holding those kinds of views are not really acceptable to us. Or, you know, demand, demand changes in terms of, you know, regulation of the Internet or of parties or find ways of trying to, uh, you know, root out some of the, the worst actors in this. I mean, you know, there, there are solutions and there's always ways to do better, but it's a matter, again, of making that a priority because I suspect most of us, you know, when we're going to vote in 12 days, uh, uh, are, are moved by other things other than the kind of overall health of our democracy. So finding spaces where, again, we can, we can think about solutions and, uh, you know, hold people to account when they're willing to cross that line and embrace, you know, the use of violence, for instance, against uh, political leaders or, uh, you know, making the most kind of outlandish claims uh, about, uh, you know, what our leaders are up to. Peter, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. You're welcome. That is Peter Grafe, Associate Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. The leaders of the five main parties square off tonight in the campaign's second French-language debate. With details on what we can expect, we're joined this morning by David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Morning, David. Hey guys, how you doing? Yeah, big big week if you're a political geek. Two you're debates, not I love it. Yeah, I I know you're all over this, and uh, we'll, you know we'll talk about it. The, the five main very, and quite broad topics, really, that they're going to cover. Do you do you see a dogfight though? Uh, you know, moving into tonight's French language debate. Absolutely, and I'll tell you why. We've got some new polling data out this morning from our friends at Ipsos. They're our exclusive polling partner, and I'll give you the Quebec-only numbers. Here they are for the first time. This is the first poll I've seen in this campaign. The Liberals are in second place. The Bloc Québécois just narrowly ahead of the Liberals. This is Quebec only. 34% for the BQ, 33% for the Liberals, 21% for the Conservatives, which is good for the Conservatives in Quebec, 8% for the NDP. Now, at the top of the ticket there, I mentioned 34% for the Bloc. Well, 32% voted for the Bloc in 2019. 33% for the Liberals now, 34% voted for the Liberals in 2019. Mm. The point there is, it's, it's, it's where we were two years ago. And that's significant because... You know, if you believe Justin Trudeau called this election to get his majority back, and I think a lot of people believe that, well, the reason he lost his majority was because of Quebec. The bloc showed up, you know, for the first time in years, all of a sudden they're back, and they took a lot of liberal seats. So if Trudeau wants to win that majority back, he's got to knock the bloc Québécois leader, Yves-François Blanchet, off his game. The problem is, Blanchet, as we saw in last week's French-language debate, Blanchet's a good debater. He's good on his feet. Trudeau's not bad either, but I think the pressure's just got to be on Trudeau because he is not, it does not look like he is going to steal a lot of bloc seats, certainly not enough to try and get his majority anywhere back. He may lose the government because the national horse race number, They'll fill you in on that. Conservatives are ahead. 35, 32, 21 for the NDP. So 35 for the Conservatives, 32 for the Liberals, 21 for the NDP. So it's a big week for Justin Trudeau trying to keep his job. So, uh, David, those Canadians watching tonight, what should we watch for being the key issues that they're likely to spar over? I'll give you two. You know, in English Canada, we've been talking about gun control for the last four or five days. Why is that? Because in last Thursday's French language debate, that's where Aaron O'Toole flip-flopped. That's where he changed the position he had from what was in his platform. And then we've since seen the Conservatives have changed their platform on gun control to match what the leader was saying. And the change that O'Toole sort of, I guess, dropped on Thursday was... You know, he said he wouldn't he would stick with some of the liberal bans on some guns. And that's had him being accused of flip flopping, saying anything just to get elected. So he's going to get that again, O'Toole, in this debate on gun control. Um, Gun control is a big issue for Quebecers in the sense that they want tight.
tighter gun control. Um, it's very different, the feeling in Quebec on gun control from the feeling in, in Alberta. And so, you know, O'Toole's going to get hammered on that. The other thing is secularism. There is a, a Quebec provincial law that forbids anyone wearing religious symbols if they work for the provincial government, teachers, judges, and so on. That means you can't wear a, you know, a cab if you go to work. You can't wear a turban like Jagmeet Singh will be wearing from the NDP. Singh has attacked that policy, says it's intolerant. He's, he's, he's attacked Trudeau for not doing enough to stand up for the rights of religious minorities. Trudeau comes from one of the most diverse ridings in the country, his Montreal riding of Papineau. And, and Blanchet, he says, we love this law in Quebec. We don't think you should wear religious symbols. Multiculturalism exists in the rest of the country, but it's different in Quebec. That will definitely be a point of uh, difference between the federal leaders and the BQ leader. I don't think you'll see that that much in the English debate. You'll definitely see that in the French debate. French debate tonight, English debate tomorrow. Thank you for breaking it down, David. Appreciate your time. No problem, guys. Have a great morning. You too. David Aiken is the chief political correspondent for Global News. The federal election race is neck and neck. And with the latest polling numbers, we turn this morning to Daryl Bricker, CEO of Global uh, CEO and uh, Global Public Affairs with Ipsos Polling. Good morning to you, Daryl. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, sir. Appreciate you being here. Let's talk about the latest numbers uh, after we saw the uh, debate last week. Did, did did anything change dramatically? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, here's, here's the campaign in a nutshell. Uh, people are really upset that we're having this election. Uh, everything has been defined by the way that was called and why it was called and when it was called. And everything that we've seen from the beginning has ba- basically been a move away from the from the, the liberals and a move to the opposition parties at this stage of the game with the conservatives moving slightly in, in, into the lead. Um, all of the events that have been happening on the campaign trail, the debate so far, nothing has really broken that pattern. It's continued right from the beginning. Let's break it down the fact that we have 12 days left, Daryl, and polling is, is one thing, but what can happen in 12 days? How much of a change can we see? Well, you know, they do say a day is a lifetime in politics, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I, my obligation is to say anything can happen, but the truth is the pattern seems to be fairly set now where um, it doesn't really matter what's happening on the campaign buses in spite of the good work of all the journalists who are out there covering it. Uh, A lot of what people think has already been baked in and it was baked in pretty much from the beginning here. So all we're doing at the end of this is it seems to be straightening out a few of the last threads. Uh, There is potential that something could happen. Um, I mean, there could be a a really catastrophic performance by by Aaron O'Toole in this debate or um, the only other catastrophic performance that could possibly have an impact would be Justin Trudeau's own own performance. But those are the two things that could happen. Uh, and if they don't, which is typical in most debates that they don't, then this pattern just continues on through the end of the election campaign. Yeah. Well, the Liberals polling 31% in this latest survey, but 38% of Canadians say the Trudeau government has done a good job and deserves re-election. And that's really not changed very much at all. So of those two numbers, which would be most important in predicting what, what might happen come election night? Well, normally what I would say to you is that vote catches up with deserve to reelect. But what's really interesting in this campaign, and I've frankly never seen it before, is that the government's performance and what people think of the performance of 
um, uh, that institution in general is more positive than what they think of the people who are running it. So the Liberal Party uh, in voting for the Liberal Party is being driven at the moment by people's reactions to the Prime Minister specifically and the reasons for which we're in this election campaign. So they they put it put on the shelf. Um, the question of how the government's performed, during, particularly during the course of the, uh, the pandemic, and they're evaluating the two things separately. Let's talk about something that we've uh, delved into uh, previously with you, Daryl, uh, during previous polls, during bu- uh, previous busy times in your world. The polling process, so you can give our listeners some kind of an idea on you know, how you folks work these questions and, and how often it's being done. Well, for Global National, we're doing it weekly, uh, and we do a combination of online and telephone. So telephone, uh, both mobile, disproportionately mobile, actually, and a little bit of landline, because there's still some people like my father who only have a landline, and it's the only way you can reach them. But an awful lot of the polling now is done online with people who agreed to do surveys with us. So um, uh, what we're uh, doing for Global is basically combining those two things, which give a pretty good representation of the electorate overall and did a very good job of uh, predicting what the outcome was going to be in the last federal election, which was also very close. Well, we'll be watching tonight to see if anything changes after the French debate and then, of course, the English debate the next night. So uh, we'll be checking in with you again, Daryl. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Global Public Affairs with Ipsos. It's International Literacy Day, and we're joined now by Kate Schutz from the Calgary Public Library to talk about the resources available to aid parents and caregivers to get them on the path to academic success. Get those kids reading as well. Uh, let's uh, talk about this, Kate. Good morning to you. Good morning. Well, I know uh, as a parent of uh, two teens, I'd like to get their noses away from the iPads and electronics into a book. So what resources does the library offer up to help both parents and kids achieve that goal? Well, we always say that any reading is good reading, and we have books of all kinds in all formats. So we have a lot of graphic novels teens are really into, as well as Magna, which is like uh, Japanese comic books. Those are really popular, and um, we also have uh, all formats, so audiobooks, e-books, as well as, of course, physical books that you can pick up at the library, and everything is free, and we are fine-free at the library as well, so no barriers there. You don't have to pay a fine if you return your book late. That's fantastic. I was going to point out the free library cards, which is was a change done, I don't know, a year, a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. and it, I, I would think that really helped a lot of people. So this COVID thing, though, has certainly prevented people from going to the library, so what other kind of challenges do you see in terms of, you know, parents, particularly, being able to make sure that their kids don't fall behind in school? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And we're always making decisions with equity in mind. So we have a Chromebook lending program where anybody can borrow a laptop to access all our resources in our digital library so you don't have to come into the library. We also have uh, things like our kindergarten book bag, which you can order online and pick up at curbside. It has uh, books to help your child get ready for uh, for kindergarten and grade one. Um, and also, we're just about to put out a whole bunch of new YouTube content, including uh, songs and uh, and uh, rhymes that you can sing with your, your babies and your toddlers, because, you know, singing and talking is all part of literacy as well for pre-readers. Kate, you mentioned the kindergarten bags, and we've got a, a kindergartner in our house, and uh, mm. that is the greatest thing to have, that curated bag of books. You walk in, you grab it, you're good to go. But also, when my wife brought my toddlers to the library, got a tour, and they were just fascinated to see the sorters. And then if you've not been to the library in 10 years, this isn't, this isn't your grandma and grandpa's library. So I encourage everybody to get a tour. Uh, is that available at all libraries? 
Um, yeah, we, we do kind of uh, impromptu tours for people. And then when we're, when we're operating at, you know, pre-COVID levels, we definitely offer regular tours, especially of our brand new Central Library downtown. And yeah. that is one fantastic building, Kate. I just, I love every time I go, I, just even walking outside of it, it, it makes you feel good. But then you walk in, it's a spectacular building. And really, if, if Calgarians haven't gone and taken advantage of it, you really should. There's so much going on there. And as we celebrate International Literacy Day, we know how important it is that kids start early with the reading so that they will continue to do it lifelong, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, you know, one of the most important things you can do is read yourself so that your children see you reading and they know that it's an important part of your family life. Good stuff. And, uh, you know, we should make it every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, That's right. Day. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate You're it. You're very Kate. welcome. Have a good day. You too. That is Kate Schutz from the Calgary Public Library. And of course, it's calgarylibrary.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.